This morning at breakfast, I'm reading the pastor's addition to the magazine Christianity Today. Okay. And I'm already, of course, have written this sermon. I'm preparing to deliver it. And I'm thrown into a little bit of quandary because I read words that say something like this. One pastor said to his congregation, why are you folks so quick to forget that you are members of one body? Why do you tear into each other all the time? And I'm, of course, interested to see which pastor is saying this to his congregation. And it is Clement, AD 96. And I'm thinking, hmm, been a long time we've been like this. And I'm wondering how that ought to shape my expectations, but I'm not going to be dissuaded that unity in the body of Christ is for us. I have a long, long passage of scripture this morning. This is Joshua 7. You know, last Sunday we were in Joshua 5. This is a continuation of the story. I'm not going to read every verse, but I'm going to read roughly 25 of them. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, this is Joshua 7. We've had the meeting of the minds on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's where we were last Sunday. We had Jericho in chapter 6. We're just going to coast by Jericho for now. And now we're on Joshua 7 on the other side of Jericho, if that just helps set you chronologically where we are in the story. If not, it will become clear. Joshua 7. But the Israelites broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, Not all the people need to go up. About two or three thousand men should go up and attack Ai. Since they are so few, do not make all the people go up there. So about three thousand of the people went up there, and Israel fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of them, chasing them from outside the gate as far as Shebarim and killing them on the slope. The hearts of the Israeli people melted and turned to water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the ground on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, all signs of grief and mourning. Joshua said, Ah, Lord God, why have you brought this people across the Jordan at all to hand us over to the Amorites so as to destroy us? Would that we had been content to settle beyond the Jordan, Oh, Lord, what can I say now, now that Israel has turned their backs to their enemies? He means fled before them in retreat. The Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us 
and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I imposed on them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have acted deceitfully. And they have put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. They turn their backs to their enemies because they have become a thing devoted for destruction themselves. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Proceed to sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, There are devoted things among you, O Israel, and you will be unable to to stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. I'm jumping now all the way to verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, It is true. I am the one who sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, this is in Jericho, a beautiful mantle, mantle think cloak, from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. They now lie hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and they spread them out before the Lord. These are the devoted things. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, with the silver, the mantle, and the bar of gold, with his sons and daughters, with his oxen, donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord is bringing trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him to death. This is the word of the Lord. God determined that the wickedness of the people of Canaan, Canaan is a region, not a city, had reached its peak. He was going to remove the Canaanites from the land and give Israel this land as he promised to Abraham. Jericho, the first city they encounter, after they cross the Jordan, is the first city to fall. And strict guidelines are given to the invading army, the Israelis. Any silver and gold you find goes to the temple treasury, to the treasury of the Lord. Everything else must be destroyed because the city of Jericho is cursed. Nothing in Jericho is safe to own. We can't adopt anything from them. It's all dangerous to us. It must be destroyed. And in saying that, God delivers Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. You know the story. They walk around the hill seven times, trumpets shout, 
walls fall down, and everything is to be destroyed. Israel, in this day, is the tool of God's judgment. However, Israel can only be the tool of God's judgment. Israel can only be used by God if they stand in a right relationship to him. We shouldn't for a second assume that Israel defeats Jericho. God causes her destruction. And now that that is done, the task of taking the rest of Canaan, the rest of the region, falls into the hands of the Israeli people. There was a passage at the end of Joshua 5 that I neglected to read last time, and we didn't take notice of it. This is the end of Joshua 5. Joshua 5.13. Once, when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing behind him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, Are you one of us, or are you one of our adversaries? The man replied, Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord have I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What do you command me, your servant, my Lord? The commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. From that point, the commander of the armies of the Lord is present with Israel. He arrives after the Passover is complete. He arrives after the nation is healed from circumcision. The Jordan River has already been crossed. Jericho is now in view. It is time to begin this campaign to take the land that God has given to him. And the armies of the Lord apparently are here. And the commander of the armies of the Lord is apparently visible to Joshua. And we know the first thing that happens mysteriously, supernaturally, the walls of Jericho fall and the nation of Israel takes possession of the city. And and I wonder how that happened, but I know one thing. It wasn't Israel's army that accomplished that task. It was the armies of the Lord fighting for the Lord, accomplishing his will on earth in ways that were completely mysterious and unknown to the people of Israel. And so they see this one amazing thing, these Israelites, and they think, my, aren't we something? But it wasn't them. And so the next city comes up. Joshua sends spies. The report is, ah, we only need a few thousand men, tiny city, not anywhere near as big as Jericho. Heavens, if we had this much success with Jericho, this tiny little town will be nothing. Piece of cake. And off they go to war, but there is a huge, huge problem. And the Hebrew army doesn't even know that the problem exists. They are not aware that the armies of the Lord will not fight for them. They do not know that they are on their own. They do not realize that they are out of step with the Holy Spirit. Why is this? Because the instructions concerning Jericho have not been fulfilled. 
Everything in the city of Jericho was to be destroyed. There was nothing good in the city worth saving. Any gold or silver found went to the treasury of the Lord. Everything else is destroyed. It's cursed. But there was some greed in the Hebrew camp. And at the time of the attack on Ai, only one family knows that this is true, or so we assume. One family, led by Achan, has a beautiful cloak found in Jericho, hidden away in their tent where no one can see. Oh, and a little bit of gold and a little bit of silver, also buried in the ground, covered over by the location of their tent. What's happened here? Stealing from God has happened. Lies and deception have kept the theft secret. It appears the whole family knows that there's treasure under their tent. It's a family secret. No big deal, they think. Just a little something to fall back on if times get tough but it still amounts to lies and deception and falsehood and now chaos. How, how does this happen? I mean, I wonder, did anybody see Achan grab that stuff when the armies flooded into Jericho? Were there other people who saw what was happening? Did others maybe see it and refuse to hold them accountable for what they had seen? Here's the big problem. The problem is this. God is dealing with Israel as a nation. He wants to use the whole nation to prove to the whole world that he is their God and God of the world. So when they individually break the law, it reflects on the whole nation, the whole family of Israel, and their whole reputation is ruined. They are not just. They don't obey. They do things on their own. And the whole community is reckoned as lawbreakers. How is this the whole community's fault? I don't know that I completely understand the workings of God's mind in this area. But the whole community must learn. The whole nation must learn that the Acts and actions of individual members can ruin the mission for all of them. So they must get into the practice of holding each other accountable for following God. This walk with God, this trusting God, this needs to become a community thing. We need to do this together so that our reputation together stays intact. And as a community, we can witness to the kindness and mercy and graciousness and justice of the God we serve. But Israel was not in this thing together. There was at least one family who were doing their own thing. And the result of the deception is this. Tiny AI, not large enough to deploy the whole Hebrew army for, gives these Israelis a serious thumping. Israel's driven back. 36 men die in the battle because of the sin of Achan. All of Israel is called into question 
People now believe across Canaan that Israel can be defeated and question the power of the God that they serve. God himself says that Israel is now eligible for destruction. Something's obviously very wrong. Joshua is despondent. Little Ai proved to be much more powerful than massive Jericho, and he doesn't, poor Joshua, understand how that's possible. And Joshua says, God, what are you doing? What is wrong? Joshua can't understand God's action because he doesn't know about Achan's sin. He can't figure out why is this thing such a mess now when it was so good just a few days ago? How did things get out of hand so quickly? And God answers simply, firmly, Israel has sinned. Therefore, Israel cannot stand in the face of our enemies. Make this right, God says, or your enemies will continue to triumph over you. And so the investigation begins, the culprits found, the treasure returned, and the family is sentenced. And Israel is commanded to stone this family. How horrible must that have been? I wonder how it felt to be the tool of God's judgment when the people being killed were family members, fellow Israelis. What did that punishment, what did God's instruction to Israel to carry out this sentence do to them? Can you imagine being in such a horrible place? All of Israel is punished for Achan's sin because they're forced to carry out the judgment of God against Achan's family. And we're meant to learn this. Sin in the camp renders the people of God useless. I think it's important, though, that these two sermons, last Sunday and this, be held in tandem, because there are two realities here, two events that we have to hold together, and both are equally important. One event happened at Kadesh Barnea, the second on the plain of Jericho. Back in last Sunday's sermon at Kadesh Barnea, God draws a line in the sand and says, the former things, everything that happened before now, those things are forgiven. Even though on that particular day, there were people present who had lived through all the wilderness wanderings. Most of those who had rejected God's leadership 38 years before, the warriors had all passed away. But God sovereignly decided that 38 years of punishment was enough, and he draws a line in the sand. He says the past sins will be forgiven. The option to renew the covenant will be offered again. Through circumcision and Passover, the covenant is renewed The commander of the Lord's army arrives and the wall of Jericho falls. This possible renewal that that God even offers them a second chance is renewed with the children of the transgressors, right? So these are the kids of the people who were faithless 38 years ago. But this is still a compassionate and gracious God acting to give them a second chance. Joshua, who has got to be like my age by now, 
is not held accountable for the sins of his countrymen. Remember, he was there 38 years ago. He was one of those guys who said, we can do this. And he got outvoted by the rest of the spies and the rest of the nations. And, and the children and, and youngsters who were present on that day, they're not being held in contempt because God has drawn a line in the sand He's offered forgiveness and renewal to all of them because God is a God who forgives and forgets. God is a God who forgives and forgets. And so we have this great healing that takes place in Israel, this great forgiveness that takes place in Israel. The covenant is reestablished. Passover is celebrated. It's like the whole thing is brand spanking new again. We can forget about the past. We can step into God's future. It's a glorious day. And you know, by God's grace, we are offered the very same kind of renewal. We've made mistakes. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. This church has not always followed God perfectly. And we are part of a larger church that has not always followed God perfectly. Christianity as a whole is blemished by the actions of sinful priests and sinful celebrity leaders, by the actions of violent and hateful individual Christians, by the hatred spewed by Christians on social media. But God is offering us all forgiveness. And he is inviting us to step forward into that forgiveness. Something that's not mentioned in the story, but absolutely must be present, is the internal thinking that Joshua must have experienced here. I mean, think about his life. Joshua, their leader now, was one of those spies who originally told Israel to go for it, to go into the promised land, to trust that God would do it, but gets outvoted. And now he wanders with Israel for 38 years in the desert. And here's what I'm curious about. How is it that Joshua keeps from being consumed by bitterness? I mean, he was the correct minority in all of this, right? Why doesn't his Facebook page say, see, I told you so, right? How does he, how does he manage not to be bitter because the choices of his countrymen result in what seems like the wasting of his life. I mean, what does it feel like to waste 38 years of your life like that? Joshua is stuck with the consequences of people who do not have as much faith as he does. I mean, it would be easy for him to sit around and blame others for his dilemma. It would be easy for him to be critical of the children of those faithless folks who would not follow God. Ah, you guys are just like your fathers. No confidence in God. But God has drawn a line in the sand and everything that went before has been forgiven and forgotten. Grudges must be 
dropped. Forgiveness must be achieved by everyone. It must be offered. It must be decided upon. You know, it's interesting to me, I get to see this occasionally, to see situations where people hold grudges against other people and those other people do not even know that someone's holding a grudge against them because they don't even know to start with that they did anything wrong. And so the one paying the price for carrying the grudge is the person who felt like they were wronged, and perhaps they were, but they carry all the penalty for themselves being wronged. And so you have to say at some point, what's the point? I mean, why carry grudges and endure the pain just because someone else messed up? At some point, we have to hear the words of Jesus that talks about forgiving and laying down these kinds of grudges. When God draws a line in the sand, it's time to move forward. But the fact that a line has been drawn in the sand, that past sins have been dropped into the sea of God's forgetfulness, that does not remove the penalty for sins yet to be committed. The tragedy at Ai demonstrates that the people of God must continue to be a holy people. When the people of God persist in their sin, when the people of God do not forsake their other allegiances, when the people of God embrace rival gods like material possessions, gold and silver, political saviors, civic religion, or the cult of the emperor, or even national hyper-allegiance, then the usefulness of such people to the mission of God is completely thwarted until confession, repentance, restitution, and recommitment takes place. Passover and Holy Week align this year. Remember what Joshua does to Israel at Kadesh Barnea? It was, it was one part cleansing and identification with the people of God by circumcision. It was one part worship through celebrating Passover. And that's where, in response to those actions, God draws that line in the sand. And it says to all the nation, it's time to forget the former things and move forward. I honestly believe that this Holy Week, God is drawing a line in the sand again for us and that we are being given an opportunity to re-enter the land. We, we've wandered in the wilderness for two years now. We've been wandering. We've been diversely divided. We've had difficulty. We've had obstacles in our course. In some ways, it feels like COVID was two years of wilderness wandering to me. But I honestly believe that God is drawing a line in the sand and saying it is time to move forward. Whatever happened during those days, you weren't at your best. And if we're honest, we weren't at our best. And I'm not talking about just us here. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ around the world. We were not at our best during COVID. But I believe, I believe that God draws a line in the sand as we come to him in repentance, as we've been doing in Lent, 
saying, Lord, take us forward into the new future that you have for us. I believe that when God draws a line in the sand, the sins of the past are forgiven. And we are now invited to celebrate Holy Week in a new way. And we have an opportunity on Easter Sunday to step forward again to renew the vows that we made in our baptism. One of the rituals of the church, an ancient ritual of the church, is that when someone is baptized, the priest or the pastor takes some of the water out of the baptismal font and sprinkles it out all over the congregation, flings the water across, hoping to get everybody a little bit wet. And he says these words, remember your baptism. Remember the covenant you made with God, that that sacred act where you promised to give yourself completely to God, where you made a public testimony to the fact that something had happened inside you, that you had asked Jesus to forgive you for your sins, that you promised him that you would attempt to follow him with his help, that you wanted to be a child of God, that you were going to live according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Those are the promises that were made in baptism. And it may be that you were baptized as a child, and those were the promises your parents made for you, but at some time later, you were given the opportunity to confirm those very promises for yourself. Some of us were baptized as adults, and we made those promises for ourselves. But regardless whether the promises were made at our baptism or were made at our confirmation, those were covenantal words that we uttered. We stepped into this covenant, and we have to ask ourselves, are we living our lives consistent with that covenant? Because it's important that the people of God continue to walk within the covenant that we've established with God. Because if we get out of step with that covenant, we're in Achan's territory again. And we can't accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world because there's sin in the camp. There's disunity in the camp. There's people walking a different direction. And how can the rest of the world look at the church of Jesus Christ and say, oh, you're an excellent guide for us, when we're walking all over the place confused about who we are? If we want to sing, build your kingdom here, then we will individually need to affirm the promises we made in our baptism. And we will need to corporately encourage one another to do the same and walk in that same way. We must encourage one another. It's apparent from what Clement said in 96 AD that we have trouble doing that. It's apparent from what Paul says in the Corinthian letters in the Bible that they had trouble doing that. Sometimes we idolize, oh, if we could just get back to the way the church was in the New Testament, phooey. The Corinthian church was a mess. And apparently Clement's church was a mess. 
And we've had a lot of mess for 2,000 years. But that does not diminish the power of God to change us, to forgive us, to establish us in a new day, and to come together and see him work to build his kingdom here. Because that is the promise of God for us. That's the work of the people of God. And we've got to decide, are we going to do it? Or are we just going to send some spies over there and say, I think a couple thousand folks will take care of that. Maybe that, maybe that church in Australia, they'll get it done for us. Or uh, we don't need the whole church together to, to bring the kingdom. We just, we just need that, little, that one little denomination. Or the... Friends, we must acknowledge our role in this. And as individuals, we must embrace the covenant promises that we made. And we may need to ask the Spirit to forgive us again from the things we've done wrong or the grudges that we have held or things that have happened in the past and allow him to draw a line in the sand that we are not going to cross over again and say, Father, by your help, renew in me your covenant and help me to link arms with my brothers and sisters in Christ so that together we can see your kingdom come. It took some time once Israel crossed Jordan for those folks to make up their minds. You don't cross the Jordan and then just run into Jericho. There's some time there. There's time for circumcision to happen. There's time for Passover to happen. There's a couple weeks of time at least for them to think about their decision. Because in things that are this momentous, you don't make a snap decision in five seconds. You don't make a snap decision in one sermon's preaching. You have to think about it. Because when we choose to follow Christ, when we choose to renew those vows made in our baptism, we must decide whether really we will and mean to name Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. And it has far-reaching implications. And so we have some time here. I'm not saying you should postpone the decision, but like a good worker, you should evaluate the cost of the decision before you make it. And so on Easter Sunday, I'm going to ask for your decision. On Easter Sunday, we'll talk again. I'm going to ask for your decision. And I'm going to ask you to affirm whether you choose to remember your baptism or not. And in the two weeks between now and then, I would invite you to ask the Spirit to speak to you, to show you the implications of what it means to say, Jesus is Lord in your life. So that together, we can be a one heart and one mind and glorify our Heavenly Father who is gracious to us, who is slow to anger, rich in love, compassionate and kind, but who is a holy God and a just God who calls us into relationship with him. I'm going to ask Aaron to come and we're going to sing a song as we close this morning. And this is a song that we probably haven't sung in a few years. At least that's what Aaron tells me when I told him we were going to sing it today.
But I think it captures what I'm hoping to say myself this morning. And it captures what I want to invite you to say this morning as we um, draw close to the end of Lent. One more week till Holy Week begins. And to a day when we confirm the decisions that we make together. I'd invite you to stand with me and we're going to sing Purify Our Hearts. Purify our hearts Touch us with your cleansing fire Take us to the cross Your holiness is our desire flows from your throne. Oh, purify our hearts. Purify our hearts. Sing it one more time with me. Purify our hearts. Touch us with your cleansing fire take us to the cross your holiness is our desire Father, we are grateful that you are slow to anger, rich in mercy, full of compassion, kindness, and grace. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that this morning that you would forgive us for the times that we have fallen short, for the times when we have muddied your witness. where our actions have cast a bad light on your character. Forgive us for those times. Lord, Lord, we beg you, draw a line in the sand again. Speak the words of your invitation into our hearts and enable us to choose to follow you, to choose to make you Lord of our lives to make the commitment to count the costs, to be willing to pick up our crosses that we might serve you. Deal with us, Holy Spirit. Speak your truth to us.
so that we can stand like oaks of righteousness, so that we can be a planting for the splendor of your glory, so that we can be your people with integrity that shine like lights on the water. Hear our prayer, O Lord. And now may God grant you each the joy of reflecting his glory, that he might be glorified in our lives, individually and together. Amen.